Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute Director of Marketing and Outreach. Joining me for a special episode of the show is my co-host and partner in outreach, retired Fleet Master Chief Paul Kingsbury, who is the OIC of our Hampton Roads debt, right there on the on the uh, fence line of Langley Air Force Base. He's our joint joint rep down there, listening to F-22s fly over his house and such. Paul, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Ward. Uh, this is, I think, our third podcast that we're nailing this week, so it's been busy on the podcast front for sure. Yep. All good stuff, talking with uh, fleet enlisted leadership, and this is another example uh, of that. But before we get to that, and by the time this airs, this information will be time late, but it's noteworthy all the same. So as I say, almost every episode of the show, I'm here in Annapolis on the, you know, two miles away from the Naval Academy, two miles away from our headquarters at Beach Hall, which we're currently not in because of COVID. But Navy football was supposed to have a home game tomorrow against Tulane, or I'm sorry, against Tulsa that has been canceled because there's been a COVID spike on the Navy football team. I think upwards of 19 members of the team, including the entire defensive line starting lineup, have been hit with COVID. So, you know, we created a bubble since the beginning of plebe summer. We've touted the how, how it's working. Um, so I believe it's still working, quote unquote, but unfortunately we won't be able to play a home football game um, tomorrow because of this COVID spike. So what happens in the way that uh, the Naval Academy is, is moving forward in the COVID environment, and this is a call that the superintendent made last spring, but when you come, when you come up positive, you get moved to the isolation wing, and I'm not sure whether that's seventh wing or eighth wing, but it's one of the you know, the, the out there wings of Bancroft Hall. Um, and then you're there for 14 days. Um, you know, food kind of slipped under your door and, and you know, no contact with the outside world and academics virtually and so forth and so on. So that's currently going on. Um, the season has been sort of a hit or miss in terms of the schedule. And um, we'll see what this does to the balance of the season, including the Army-Navy game, which we've said in previous episodes is going to be played at West Point this year for the first time since World War II. Um, so we'll see. Uh, it's disappointing for me personally because, as I've also said on the show, I work the chain gang. My Naval Academy class does the, the chains of home football games. And ironically, I just got my COVID test results back, and I'm COVID negative, but uh, apparently the team is not. So... Um, as we talk about, since we've been talking about TR in the earliest days of, of this pandemic, um, here's another example of how uh, it is the fleet is literally not immune. Um, so, again, this will be dated information by the time the show airs, but it's still noteworthy all the same. Hey, Ward, speaking of dates, uh, yesterday was two years for me at the Naval Institute, by the way. So that time went fast. No doubt. I still think of you as the FNG. Have we stopped hazing it, you uh, yet? A lot has gone on. Um, it's just been great, right, to work those lines of effort, increasing awareness in the Naval Institute, uh, and that space of advocacy and awareness that help leads to action uh, on behalf of Navy and Naval warriors. That's fantastic. No, that's that. Congratulations on that milestone. Uh, milestone. I'll stop calling you boot camp now. Um, and uh, yeah, I know. I think I've earned my way past that. You have. You absolutely have. All right, why don't we get right to our guest because we've got a, a, a real um, consequential episode happening here. Yeah, absolutely, Ward. So I'm excited this morning to welcome uh, a one-repeat guest and a new one. So the first one is Dr. John Cordell. Uh, he, as we know, he's been a Proceedings author. He's been on the Proceedings podcast before. But uh, John Cordell is a retired Navy captain with uh, 30 years of service, including two command tours and as the chief of staff for Naval Surface Forces Atlantic. He was the Proceedings 2018 Author of the Year, the Surface Navy Association's Literary Award winner in 2013, and again in 2018. And he's been recognized for his work in the area of circadian watch rotations, crew endurance, uh, and he's also received John Lo John Paul Jones Award and the Bumed Epidicus Award for innovative and inspirational leadership. So John is doing great work in advocacy uh, on those lines of effort. We've also got today Flea Mash Chief Rico Raw, 
uh, Rick was my relief, and he's currently serving as the Fleet Mass Chief at U.S. Fleet Forces, and I think that makes him the 19th Fleet Mass Chief. At some point, I think we stopped counting the numbers before all these titles that people say, but uh, he's a native of Long Island, New York, but he was raised in Florida, so he's got some Florida man time, as I do, and he entered the Navy in October of 1992. His early years in the Navy were as an engine man, and then he was selected in the Command Mass Chief Program in 2008. He served a variety of tours, tours worldwide. He's been to Singapore. He's been to Stuttgart, Germany. Uh, and before Fleet Forces, he was uh, in Naples at Sixth Fleet uh, as the command mass chief there. So, John and Rick, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Hey, thanks very much. Great to be here. Yeah, good morning, uh, Paul and Ward and, uh, and John. And thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to capture a topic and bring it forward. We should have probably done this a lot earlier because I know and I hear um, it's still having great impact on the fleet. And it builds on an article, John, you wrote about a year ago in December 2019. It was a USNI blog piece titled Manning Matters. Uh, and in that article, you laid out some broad challenges to and the impacts of chronically undermanning the surface fleet. And you tied into the comp- comprehensive review and some other studies that were born out of that. So I wanted to kind of start there with kind of a 101 of that article, what your intent was it, what was the problem you were identifying, and uh, give the audience some background on that. Yeah, so basically, if you go back to the comprehensive review, one of the action items was, uh, well, one of the findings was they found uh, three things. They found uh, some manning shortages, they found levels of stress, and they found levels of fatigue and then they had the accidents. And so uh, the report kind of ties that together in, in an abstract fashion and says, we think there's something there. Um, let's go look at it. And so they actually uh, went with the uh, uh, Naval, uh, not the Naval War College, the Naval Postgraduate School and, uh, and built a study where they took two destroyers and they sort of lined them up to go through the same paces of the basic phase with one of them plussed up to 10% more manning than the other. And they did a basically a master's level thesis research project on the two ships, about a year, year and a half. Um, ironically, it took a while to get the ship manned up because it was a manning study and they didn't have a lot of extra people around. So they did get them up to speed and they put them through their paces and, uh, and then the findings were presented in two uh, master's thesis presentations and then sort of a roll-up. And the bottom line was, uh, lo and behold, the ship with more people um, came out with more sleep per person, about 45 minutes uh, in port. They went home about an hour earlier than the other ships. Their morale was better. And when they went through their paces, um, they scored better um, than the DDG, than the class average on their uh, on their training events uh, through the afloat training group. Uh, the other thing that happened was because it took some time to get uh, the second ship manned up, when they started, it was lower than the first ship, but it also didn't perform as well until they bumped up the manning. So they, did, they ended up with what they call a crossover study that uh, they had two different situations and they were able to replicate similar results. So the takeaway is, as the title said, manning matters, right? It matters in performance. It matters in sleep. It matters in work. So for the audience that may not understand, and I'll tell you, uh, and I'm going to talk about this a little later in it. Um, when I got into my job as the fleet mass chief at fleet forces and got introduced in this world of manning and manpower, I quickly realized how little I knew about it. So can you give a 101? Let's assume there's manning shortages. How does the Navy buy manpower and get it to the fleet? Can you just cover down real quickly how we do that? Uh, I'll try just for, 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 uh, uh, transparency. So I was a CO, then I went to the staff and like you knew nothing about Manning. So they made me the N1, the personnel officer. Um, and uh, I did get to visit all the different uh, nodes of Manning, NAVMAC, UPERS, up to DC, did that for a while, and then obviously had to deal with the chief of staff. So I did get to look and work with this domain. Um, it all boils back to the OPNAV instruction. I think it's 1000.16, where there's a Manning model that tells that basically the folks at the Naval Manning uh, Authority do some math to figure out how many people it takes. They set the requirement, and there's a whole bunch of math behind that on workload, uh, how much work a person can do, et cetera. And that is what's called the ship's manning document, or SMD. Um, based on that, the Navy buys a percentage of that based on the available budgeting, um, and that's called basic allowance. And then, basically, they sort of give you a fair share uh, to try to balance out the fleet, 
Um, and uh, I know the initials are NMP. I forget what that actually stands for. Um, but uh, and then you look at what's actually there and that gives you what's called the current on board. So those are uh, like four acronyms that go to that. And of course, each number that I mentioned is lower than the one before it uh, because of things like funding, because of friction, because of time for training, things like that. Does that help? Yeah, I think so. Um, and there's I came across a study as I and, and just to note. Uh, I did a follow-on article to your piece. I've currently titled it Manning Still Matters. You know what I mean? And kind of emphasize your point. We'll see if that name stays the same. But as I was researching that, I pulled forward your article, those studies. But also, um, there's a CNA study that does a great job of this cradle-to-grave explanation of the manpower process across the officer um, realm and the enlisted force. So anyone interested in that, uh, that's a good study. It was done in 2017 by David Rodney. So... Um, let me jump over to Fleet Rick O'Raw on this. And um, so there's an as is and or there's a should be right kind of process that uh, John briefly described. And then there's the current as is. So I think you've grown you know, into your role a lot. You've learned about this. So how do you assess the current as is and how it's not fulfilling the role it needs to? Yeah, thanks, uh, Paul. And so um, you know, really what we you know, what we have across the Navy is. Um, is a shortage, right? And this is what, you know, um, you and John and others have written about is, you know, the, uh, as a matter of fact, I think it was a, about a year and a half ago, um, uh, the fleet commanders testified in Congress that we were over 9,000 sailors gapped at sea, right? And so that persists today. The number actually is a little bit more than that. I think that uh, for our operational fleet units today, we're over 10,000 gaps at sea. Um, and you don't have to go far, right? I mean, you go out and visit a ship on the waterfront, and that's what's on the minds of, of fleet leadership. I mean, uh, probably the single most common discussion point that I get when I go to visit a unit, um, and whether this is in the wardroom or down in the chief's mess or just on a deck plate with the sailors, is, you know, um, you know, we need more people. Um, and I think to, to John Cordell's point earlier, you know, um, you know we pay uh, uh, a group of folks at the Navy Manpower Analysis Center to, to get after studying how many people does it take to fulfill the requirement, you know, and, um, and they give us, you know, I mean, they have, they, they have a lot, a lot of science behind what they do and they come up with a number. Um, and for lots of reasons, uh, you know, I think fundamentally it's money. Um, we don't buy that requirement, you know, and so you start off kind of in a deficit. And so, you know, uh, uh, and to, to John's all other point, you know, you, so you got this validated requirement. We'll call that the SMD, right? That's how many people it takes to fulfill the rock po of the of the ships. Uh, and then we buy something less than that, and we call that billets authorized BA, right? And then of that billets authorized, there's just only so many people in the Navy that we can redistribute around the Navy to fill the holes, uh, and you end up with this current on board. Um, and so at the end of the day. Um, you know, the standard Navy work week for our sailors um, that NAVMAC does the analysis on is every sailor is going to do 67 hours worth of work week. That's kind of, um, and so the requirement might say, and this is just, an, you know, a, uh, you know, this is a fictitious example. I'll just use some whole numbers to make it easy. But, you know, let's just say that we need 300 people um, to do the requirement. And all 300 are working 67 hours a week. Well, if I don't have, 300 people at the, on the vessel. I think that, you know, one of the things that, that uh, John Cordell is talking about is, you know, uh, the only other option there is, okay, things don't get done. We don't meet the requirements or um, you work your people longer or your people just work longer. Um, and that wears on your people. You end up with the fatigue that John's talking about, or you end up with stress. Um, you know, the, the, you know, that will manifest itself in different ways. Um, so I see, uh, John, you probably understand this. Remember, Nuke Power School, we were taught the neutron life cycle, right? And you lose these neutrons along the way. So one loss of manning and manpower right out the gate is that gap between the SMD right, and BA, like you mentioned. But there's other things, right? There's a thing called friction um, or what I used to call unplanned losses, right? Can you talk a little bit about those, Rick, and what how we lose sailors there? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, you know, in any... Uh, organization, right? You're going to, uh, folks are going to get, you know, 
injured, right? I mean, we're a huge organization, global, you know, over 300,000 people. And so people get injured. Um, people um, have, uh, uh, you know, sailors have families, right? And so, uh, you know, maybe uh, uh, you've got like pregnancies, um, people go limited duty because of medical. And so um, this is just normal kind of, you know, managing a large workforce, large diverse workforce where, you know, um, if I'm, you know, if we would go back and say, okay, I need those 300 people and I only buy, you know, 200 and say 70 of them. And then I've got another chunk of folks that friction is somewhere around 8% um, of those people are in some sort of, they're transient, they're in training, but they're not to the fleet yet, or um, their patients are getting care at a hospital. Um, uh, well, then, you know, um, uh, I just have less of a workforce to get the, you know, to get the requirements met. Yeah. And the current numbers don't account for that. Right. So when you talk about the full requirement, um, that doesn't account for that 8% of friction that you lose over time. We'll talk about that in a bit. Um, and then other things, right. If you don't meet recruiting goals and retention goals, there's more sailors that you lose in this overall equation. So, Hey, John, can you talk a bit about this concept of fit and fill and how that impacts this? Uh, sure. But I'd like to, to, um, back up just a little bit because there's another dimension to this. Um, and, uh, or maybe, maybe we can move to it a little bit later, but, uh, uh, we're all we're all talking about sailors at sea kind of right now. And just to, to bear in mind, that uh, let's say that Paul, Rick and I are three chiefs on a ship uh, and we stand a three section watch, which, by the way, is sort of the basis for that OPNAV instruction. Right. That that the watch standards are, are built around three people for one approved watch station, uh, which means, as Rick said, eight hours of watch per week uh, per day. Um, or, or 56 hours per week, and then they add the maintenance, which gets you that 67 hours. Uh, Rick didn't mention there's another piece to this, which is training and I think service diversion, which really makes it 81 hours is kind of what the Navy expects. You know, great recruiting poster, right? Join the Navy, work 81 hour weeks. Um, but that's kind of what we do, right? That's the model. Um, so that's really the starting point is 81. Um, but to keep the three of us on that ship, uh, at some point, we're going to burn out if we don't go to shore. We need some more training. So the seashore ratio for enlisted, I think, you know, somewhere between five and three, five and two. Um, so for the three of us, there's at least two more people who have to be ashore somewhere so that we can keep the rotation going. And then somebody's got to be in training. So there's really a sixth person there. So keep in mind, that as we talk about three people per ship, we're really talking about six people in the Navy to keep the three of us there. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point. Uh, so, so the 67 hours is watch and maintenance, right? Primarily. Right. And then it doesn't account for other things that come up, right? And we've seen all that stuff come up that just in time training, uh, sexual assault prevention, response, roving patrols, ATFP watch requirements. Um, how is that all accounted for? What's the impact of those things? Right. Well, some of that stuff is, and again, I'm probably, I'm not the NAVMAC expert, um, so I wouldn't take this as ground truth, but when you look at it, most of that stuff is accounted for, but then you have a great reference in here um, that I highly recommend as a read, in addition to uh, to um, uh, Commander Mansfield and, and Garbett's uh, thesis, is from Christine Fletcher, uh, who wrote this one called The Unresourced Burden on Sailors. So she accounts for a bunch of things that we do that are not programmed into the model. Um, I think you know one of Rick's favorites is the motorcycle safety course and some other stuff there. There's some general admin time, but it all adds up, and everything is time. You know, I as I as I sort of delve into this human factors uh, studies domain, um, in me in my in that world, you know, man hours is the currency of the realm, right? How much time do I have to do the work that I'm supposed to do, um, and then what's the impact if I don't have enough time? We could talk about that later. But to your fit fill piece, there's really two pieces to that. Um, and it's interesting because it ties back to these studies. So Phil is just the raw numbers. You know, Rick said 300. Let's use that. Um, do you have 300 people? Back to your football analogy, that would be like if, if all I cared about for the Navy football team was do I have 11 players, then that would be Phil, right? It could be all cornerbacks, but I have 100% Phil. That's a bit extreme. Um, fit is do I have the right players? So a football team fit would be, do I have one quarterback, two cornerbacks, a wide receiver, a center? And they would all have, you know, in Navy terms, a, a naval enlisted classification. Um, and so 
if you were short somebody, you might have 100% fill, but if you didn't have a wide receiver, then your fit would be 90%. Or if your wide receiver was COVID positive, to, to put it into current well, events. Terms. <laughs> not, not a trivial point, or if they'd had contact with someone who was COVID positive and they're all off in a hotel, you know, for 14 days. Um, you know, what is that like a COVID tax, I guess you could call it. So fit filled, what are those current numbers? Uh, obviously you'd want a hundred, a hundred, but what do we currently set as the goal and why do we set them there? Um, I think Rick's probably better poised to answer that. I don't have like good visibility so, on the field numbers, but uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll hand that one over to Rick. Yeah. Um, thanks, John. So, yeah, so the fit fill is 92% fit is uh, uh, and 95% fill. Those are um, targets that are set to ensure um, that we are, you know, assuming the least amount of risk on a ship prior to M date is the goal um, for 92, 95. Uh, and then, you know, in execution, it will be wherever that happens to fall out. So that um, there's a turning kind of circle here where, you know, NPC, Millington, you know, they're kind of cutting orders nine months plus out, right? And so inside that turning circle, you know, ships might have somebody gets hurt or they have these unplanned losses that you talked about. Um, and so as that number falls below 9295, you know, we want to ensure that out there on deployment, when the ships have got to execute mission, um, that there is, you know, uh, that they have the majority of the team to kind of use the football team analogy. So their 95% fill is, um, is a requirement. It can be above that. Um, and they're 92% fit, and it can be above that. Um, but often what we see is a lot of TICOM-directed manning action. So the, you know, the TICOM... Uh, Probably, you know, John and his role um, back in the day when he was at N1 at uh, Surfland, you know, the TICOM can maneuver inside of, you know, days, weeks, months, and they can start maneuvering people around. So they can take, you know, a, you know, a, a gunner's mate off of ship A and move them over to ship B that's getting ready to go out the door on deployment. Um, and they can start rearranging kind of the deck chairs, if you will. Um, it's certainly not what we want to see happen, but... Um, we also need to ensure that, you know, the, that we're buying down risk because the ships don't have the number of people that they require. So end date is basically deployment time, right? So you're basically getting manned to the maximum extent you can, given the distributable inventory in time for them to deploy. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's get into some impacts here. So I'll, uh, fleet, I'll get to you on this one. So, I see this as not just quality of life impacts. John's written about this, but he's also written about the quality of work. Can you talk on some of the fleet feedback, the observations, uh, not just the science and data, but what's the fleet perspective on the impacts of the manning shortfalls? Well, I, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, kind of in that article that, uh, that John was referencing that manning matters, you know, uh, you know, what you end up doing is, is you put it, you know, uh, there's an incredible strain on the force on our sailors to accomplish the requirements, right? I mean, I, uh, I think that, you know, my experience with our sailors are they are all in on uh, the importance of their job and what that means to the readiness of today's Navy um, and, and, frankly, what it means for our nation. And so sailors are working incredibly hard to accomplish the requirements um, that are laid out for the vessels. And so I think, you know, um, in, in that article, I think the there was a couple of discussions in there about, um, you know, sailors are sleeping less, sailors are working more. Um, I think John mentioned earlier, like stress on the fleet and fatigue on our sailors. Um, and so those things are real. I mean, you know, uh, it's sometimes easy to look at a bunch of numbers or, you know, we talk about 92, 95, or we talk about the requirement, um, but you go out there and have a conversation with a sailor, right? I mean, um, you know, they're working really hard to, to get us a ship that's fit to fight. Um, at the same time, I think that the rest of the organization's working hard to, to man the fleet, but there's certainly a lot of work that can still be done. Yeah, and beyond, you know, like I said, the NPS studies, I think those are great. I cite those in my article, the pieces John's written, sailors have written too. So, you know, Petty also three or Petty also third class, Nate and Martin wrote a piece about improving maintenance culture to retain sailors. And Ward and I had a podcast with them, and he specifically talked about 
Manning shortfalls being one of these pieces. So I see three impacts, right? Either you work more and the, you know, the cognitive stress on people and the outcomes there. And then they, they do things like, you know, increase alcohol use, um, or they get in a bad mindset, right? Attitude shifts. There's an impact there or work doesn't get done, right? Things just can't get done. They get maintenance requirements, get pushed, um, pushed into availabilities and other things, right? So then you add to availability time in the shipyards and then you have growth there. That work goes along and then ships don't get out on time. And then, or things are not done to standards, right? Um, and frankly, I mean, I've written about this before, you know, the sailor may feel pressure to get things done. They know they can't get it done. So they do it to a minimum requirement or not even to the full requirements. Um, what do you think about that one, Rick? Yeah, I think that... Um you know, my experience with that is I think that um, there's a mixed bag of what folks do when they're understaffed. And that's in any organization in society. And certainly that that ends up playing itself out in the fleet as well. Right. So, um, you know, uh, whether sailors are, you know, uh, hopefully not. Right. Well, I don't want any sailor in the fleet taking a shortcut. Right. Like, the, you know, the safety of the sailors is paramount. Um but I think that that's a net, you know, potentially a, it's a natural human tendency. I have all these requirements. I have a limited amount of time. Um, and so how do I get these things done and how do I get them prioritized? Um, and so I think that there's risk involved there. Um, and I think it's, it's very difficult to calculate or to know, you know, um, what risks each person is willing to take or not willing to take. Um, and so they're, they're buying risk for the organization. Yeah, it's that concept of normalized deviance playing out in the fleet again uh, across a variety of things. So, all right. Hey, John, I'll jump over to you now. So, um, I mean, I just wrote down, so why can't the Navy get this right? I know in your blog, if you go down the comments, former commander of fleet forces, Admiral John C. Harvey, had you know a very good response to your article. And he talked about this being a problem. You know, he's like, John, you tell the basic manning story for the past 50 years. Basically, the Navy has not bought the billets necessary to meet the manpower requirements determined by the Bureau and documented in the ship or squadron or the shore manning documents. Uh, and he basically says since the end of the Korean War, they've dealt with this issue and never paid for that full bill. So why why can't we buy that? And why, you know, what's the root cause there? Right. Well, I think, you know, in my experience, uh, and I think most uh, acquisition folks will tell you this, that at the end of the day, the people are kind of the most expensive part of the, uh, of the system, right, the ship. And so, you know, as a human factors person, uh, or HSI, human systems integration, you kind of look at the, at the whole system, but then the, the people part is, is where our focus is. And, uh, and they're expensive, right? I mean, it takes time to train, it takes time to recruit uh, and to retain. And so, if the acquisition world can cut people using technology or other things, then that's always an attractive option. Uh, we have learned twice now that that doesn't always work out. Uh, well, three times. Optimal Manning, as, as I've written about, and you, you guys have talked about a lot, uh, and both the LCS and Zoomwall, where the crew size has you know grown at least 50% uh, from the original plan as we started to get the science back in. And so what I, what I am seeing now is much more attention being paid uh, you know, adding a human factors billet, all the type commanders, folding that, that discussion into the manning equations and things like that and accounting for the human frailty piece. Um, you know, that hasn't translated into budgets yet, but, uh, but you know, it takes time. So, uh, you know, I think that's part of the problem is uh, what is the right. And again, I think, as Rick said, it's very tough to quantify that. You know, you take a ship that's at, uh, uh, you know, back to the three of us. Right. Let's say that our other job is to do maintenance. So right now. If there's three of us, we have 11 hours a week to do maintenance. Um, that's probably not enough. I think Rick will tell you that's probably not enough. Um, so what do we do? Well, we to get the work done, right? And what do we not do? Sleep. Um, and so that becomes a fatigue issue. It becomes a stress issue, um, which people deal with in different ways. And so it's very tough to, to, to kind of you know, measure that. Um, but the other piece is when that gap occurs, uh, now it's just two of us. Well, now I'm at 12 hours a day of watch, which is, I can't do math, 84 hours a week. Um, and uh, and I'm already exceeding what I'm supposed to be working just. And so, you know, how's that going to work out? And so uh, it, it, it feeds uh, uh, a sense of urgency, a sense of stress um, and a sense of fatigue. 
And uh, and I think you know one of the most compelling articles that I've read. I love your from the deck plate series because um, the good thing about these junior folks is they just tell what they're thinking, right? And they don't they don't sugarcoat it. Uh, Petty Officer Alexander Fuller, um, very compelling article from the uh, about the, the uh, mental health effects on uh, of of banning shortages. So um, that's where it kind of comes home to roost. And then I think you know I think we're starting to figure that out, but. Uh, uh, it's a tough, tough problem, and I think you you point out in your article here just how complex the Manning system is. So the last thing I want to do is impugn. There's a lot of good people, uh, many who are good friends of mine, working this pretty hard, um, including Rick here. But uh, but part of it is how do you communicate that that cost or that risk? Uh, you know that graph that we talked about actually has the word risk on it. Um, as you show the gap between, I think, NM, or between COB and, uh, uh, and SMD. Um, but what does that mean, right? That's, that's the hard part, and that's where I spend my time right now trying to articulate. Does that make well, sense? Yeah, it does. So, John, one of the things that comes up in my mind when you mention the, uh, the human shortfalls and the, the fatigue piece on, let's just say, an LCS, is we have to make sure going forward, because this, this discussion – is is a fleet tactical discussion if we move this discussion to the left when an rfp is socialized or a new program of record comes down the pike we have to make sure that these sort of science projects and these good idea fairies are crushed because the way lcs was greenlighted among other things was against that promise of low manning and as you said both DDG 1000, uh, you know, Zumwalt class and the LCS was was moved forward against the promise of very small crews. And, and so as we go from current manning or current ship multiples, whether we get to 355 or 500, whatever happens in the out years here, we have to make sure that these lessons are not just punted on and we start building ships that in turn we're going to have to man beyond what the plan was. No, I, I don't I don't disagree and uh, and I am actually quite heartened by the discussions that are going on about that exact issue for the newer classes of ships. So uh, you know, without going into too much detail, I do think and in fact I know that those discussions are being had. So um you know, so that's good news that uh, a lot of the folks, you know, the other thing with some of the ships like the FFGX uh, is sort of a known entity, right? So we go, a similar ship is out there operating with a certain number of people. And so they kind of have figured out the math without having to go uh, tabletop it. So, uh, so yeah, no, I, I definitely think, you know, and, and again, back to putting this sort of, this sort of uh, expertise at the, at the tide commanders to get that direct tie to the fleet, you know, um, is, uh, is, is, is really important. You know, um, you know, I just I jump on that too, Warren, and say, you know, um, I think, you know, this, you know, I believe in the science behind NavMax analysis, right? They tell you the minimum number of people required to man a platform to execute the Rock Po. You know, we have chosen for various reasons that we've discussed to buy less than that. So if if, if it's a minimum requirement is three hundred people, and you buy less than that, you know. Uh, not only are you accepting risk, but you're 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 creating you know uh, more work for the people that are on the platform, right? And the more you kind of keep slicing at that, the less people that you have on the platform, it just compounds how much has to get done because the requirement doesn't go away, right? Like the if the ship takes X number of hours of maintenance a year and you just don't have the people to do it, um, you know the the requirement still has to be accomplished one way or another, right? And so I just think it's important that we kind of you know, stick to, and, and there's discussions at really high levels in the Navy. I'm really encouraged. Um, uh, leadership is having this discussion about, you know, moving from a, uh, moving from this term bill that's authorized and measuring readiness based on the NAVMAC um, SMD requirement, right? And so um, I think when uh, Paul was talking a little bit earlier here about like normalized deviance, why well, would, you know, I think you could make a pretty strong argument that maybe just having a conversation about billets authorized, right? Uh, maybe billets authorized is a, a chunk of normalized deviance. And then we we can't even, you know, uh, we struggle to man a ship 
to the billets that are authorized. That's the first time somebody's used Rock Poe on the podcast, and I have to salute you for that. That's one of my favorite acronyms. Actually, for, for those who don't know, what is that? It's the required operational capability. And now you got me, um, uh, Paul. I'm trying to think of the uh, projected operational environment. Yeah. So thank you so much. Uh, I should have been able to look at plan stump the stud um, when he could have just answered it himself. Right. Yeah. No, I wanted... set me up. You know, uh... <laughs> no way. It, those are based on li- literally mission sets and mission capability. Right. So this isn't just willy nilly. Hey, 300 people, human factors, engineer nerds figuring this out. Right. This is based on what the ship needs to do in the projected environment. Right peer competitor fight, those kind of things. I appreciate Fleet pointing that out because I was pointing to sort of the developmental guys and the requirements guys when really the shortfalls come, you know, downstream of that. So I appreciate him, him, you know, threading that needle for us. That's an important point to make. I see this if you want action, right? So in this case, the action is like, hey, let's get the fleet man to where it should be. I see it as a pyramid of building on awareness, which leads to advocacy, which Rick and John, you guys are doing a great job of, which ultimately hopefully influences decision makers to take action that we need. I think we're still in awareness and a big part of this. So to what extent do you see a lack of awareness and education um, in senior leaders or decision makers as a cause or a, a contributing cause to some of this? You know, I, a couple of things, Paul, you know, um, you know, first off, I think that um, from where I sit, I don't really have an expectation that our sailors on the deck plates, you know, are studying this or, or, you know, investing a lot of time into learning about this, right? Like, you know, we went out and recruited those sailors to go do a very important job in the fleet. And, you know, um, and there's lots of efforts ongoing today to, to remove barriers so the sailor can focus on, you know, what we recruited them to do, right? Operate, maintain, troubleshoot, and repair um, uh, equipment on the on their warfighting platform so that they can provide kind of uh, the Navy a platform that's fit to fight, right? And then, you know, kind of, um, you know, uh, hopefully we don't ever have to get there, but in the event that things, you know, we have to go from deter to defeat, you know, the wardroom is going to have to be able to fight that platform. So we need to be able to, my kind of, you know, dumb it down experience, you know, the enlisted component, operate, maintain, troubleshoot, repair, provide a, a unit, a warfighting platform that's fit to fight, wardroom, you know, fight the platform. Um, so I don't really want or need, you know, kind of, you know, the, the FC1 learning these things. But I do believe that there's a comes a point in time, um, you know, certainly in senior enlisted leaders, you know, I think that was our, uh, maybe as our command mass chiefs, start getting jobs where they're going to go work for flag officers, they're going to go work at TICOMs, um, that they're going to need to really have an understanding of how all this plays itself out. Because um, even to, you know, to, to man the fleet today um, will take a huge capital investment, probably measured in the billions. Um, and it's going to take time, right? I mean, like today, right now, you know, I, I commend CNP and the team. You know, they're bringing in over 40,000 enlisted sailors a year through boot camp. And they're doing that in a COVID environment. I mean, uh, they are really getting after it. But if if we just called it 10,000 gaps that we need to make up right now, that, you know, uh, there's there's throughput challenges, right? They, you know, boot camp can only house and train so many sailors a year. The A schools, various, they, they have limitations. And so this is going to be kind of a whole of Navy effort to get after it. Um, I'm encouraged because, you know, uh, where I sit, I get to hear the discussions that are happening. And I know that leadership out there, um, you know, of the Navy is fully engaged in this. You know, uh, around here, you know, kind of the discussion is, you know, man the fleet to the validated requirements, the SMD requirements, buy the requirement and buy the friction. Right. And then we got to Then we're going to have to be efficient. Um, and there's lots of efforts been going on for years to to buy the full requirement and to buy the friction. I mean, we buy some of that stuff today, um, you know, but the Navy's going to, you know, I think at some point we'll be forced to make even harder and harder decisions about, you know, do you want to grow the Navy and buy, um, like Ward said, do you want to buy up the, you know, 500 uh, manned and unmanned platforms? 
Um, and there'll be a cost with that. There'll be a cost in manpower. There'll be a cost for maintenance, for training. Um, and then we, you know, you still kind of have this gaps that we have today that, that cost money too. And, and the devil's in the details there, what Fleet just said. And, and I just, there was a US 9 news item a couple of days ago that I found very interesting is the MQ-25s are going to be maintained aboard ship by the E-2D squadron. You know, that just seems like a, a sort of, I don't want to say random kluge, but, you know, I, if, if I was a, a, a maintainer in an E-2 squadron and I'm going to have to now maybe supplement my skill set with being able to work on an MQ-25, I'll do it. But, you know, is this really thoroughly thought out or is this just making do with what we got, you know? Uh, I mean, it really does come down to the details as we talk about what future force composition is going to look like. Hey, Ward, um, you know, you bring up a great point that I think is worth um, unpacking a little bit, too, right? Um, and, I, and I also think this kind of goes back to what Paul brought up earlier about um, retired Admiral Harvey's comments, right? The systems today are just so incredibly complex that, you know, maybe, you know, maybe when I came in the Navy 28 years ago or, or, or longer, you know, before that, you know, you could kind of maybe get by with a mechanic as a mechanic as a mechanic. I was an engineman, right? So, you know, uh, I could work on, you know, kind of any diesel engine. Well, you know, uh, things things become a lot more complex over time now. And so now your diesel engine, you know, you pop the hood on your car and you look at it and you're like, hey, are you going to go get, you know, start getting your hands dirty on that? Well, well, no. Well, why not? Well, look at this thing, right? I need a computer to troubleshoot. Well, that's how all of it is today, right? The diesel engines, all computer control. Um, you know, that, 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 uh, unmanned aircraft, you know, um, and so, uh, this is something that the aviation community has done a really good job. I mean, amazing in the last couple of years where, um, you know, you know, when we look at our sailors, uh, for instance, we might say, you know, I'll, I'll pick a rate, you know, um, like an aviation machinist mate, right. An AD. And so from kind of a big aggregate level, an AD is an AD is an AD. Right. Well, if I'm an AD one or an ADC and I've got 15 years of experience working on uh, SH-60 helicopters and now I'm up for orders and you cut me orders to an F-18 squadron as an AD one or an ADC. Right. Um, I am probably not what you're looking for. Right. Like I probably am not qualified. I probably don't have the experience. And so. The aviation community has done this, some great work with what they call Amex, Aviation Maintenance Experience. And, um, and you know, now, um, you know, they've done enough work with this and studied it where Millington is doing detailing this way. You know, so experience matters. And I think that um, or what you, you know, bring up with MQ-25 is, is, is going to be very germane. Right. You know, um, every. It's, it's kind of kind of like this will be a, you know, it's a, probably not a great analogy, but, you know, a doctor is not a doctor is not a doctor. So the person that I go see for, you know, um, ear, nose and throat isn't the person that I want doing heart surgery on me. But they're all doctors. Does, does that make sense? Ward? No, so, it does. It does. And, and as we know, um, the fleet always manages to make it work. Right. I mean, our, 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 as you said, our sailors are resilient. Our sailors are innovative. Um, this will work. And this is where I show how, you know, the old guy, the gray beard in me. Um, I remember the first time I saw uh, the Naval Aviation playbook and it had the sort of airplane multiples on, the, on a flight deck orthographic projection. It had, at the time, the X-47s with Super Hornets and, and, and F-35s. And I just was thinking, if I was lined up behind a JBD you know, in, in my trusty F-14, and I saw an unmanned airplane taxi to Cat 1 behind me, that would freak me out, right? And Or never mind being in the Case 1 pattern with unmanned airplanes, right? So I'm an old guy. I know, all I know to be true is the Navy will figure it out for oh, yeah. sure. Um, and, and I just hope we don't abuse the, the you know, the good, good spirits and the good attitudes of our sailors in the process. Um, but you're right. You're, you're, you're correct that uh, we have systems in place where, as you said, what I used to consider an AD. And by the time you made first class, I can say this for the Oceana flight line, 
you know, for the Tom. By the time you made first class, you were a known community icon, and you just went from squadron to squadron, and and so you do this short, you know, shore duty, usually shorter than your sea duty at the schoolhouse there, and then you come right back as a by name call to a Tomcat squadron. So by the time I got to my second and third tour, I knew every enlisted guy from first class on up because I'd seen them before, and and so. We didn't have any H-60 guys or H-3 guys come in, um, but that's because we had the manpower to pull that off, you know? And, and so it's good that you, you've identified a system that identifies the experience piece, and it's not just this sort of all ADs or all, you know, any given raider created equal, because that's folly, as we know, in any warfare specialty. Fit is what matters these days, not necessarily fill, right? Another point how do you account for in the Rock Po these change in mission sets? So by making those maintainers maintain that new platform, right? That that adjusts, you know, because um, that gets in the training pipelines and things like that. Um, and John, I know you've written about fit. I don't think we have time to get specifically into it, but your article covers down why you think they should measure fit and use new metrics and data to display the risk based on the lack of fit um, rather than uh, the lack of fill. And then one other point I know, right before I retired, Vice Admiral Burke, when he was CNP, he was definitely invested. He talked about, for the first time in the history of the Navy, being close to buying the total cost of ownership of manpower, right? So not just the SMD, but being able to buy some of that friction. Rick, are you hearing any progress on that? And, uh, you know, what CNOs talk about all this at this point? Yeah, so um, a couple of things. Uh, one, yes, we are buying some of the friction. We we aren't buying all of it, um, and so we need to do that. Um, you know, we, you know, ultimately, we really just, you know, uh, there's lots of discussion about resourcing the full requirement, um, investing in the in the friction, um, and that's really, you know, I think, you know, it's encouraging to me that that leadership um, is taking a hard look at at that, right? I think that, you know, um, you know, we say often. Um, and I believe it, right? Our people are our most precious, our most valuable resource. It's my experience with talking to sailors that the most precious and most valuable resource to the sailor is the is their time, right? And so, you know, I think as John uh, mentioned earlier, you know, uh, in that study that was done at postgraduate school study, you know, when when the command has more bodies sailors get more time. Um, and I think that that study, John, maybe you can help me. I think that the ship that had the less number of sailors on it, there was no leave. There was no sailors taking time off. And, this, and, the, and the, the unit that, you know, had like a 10% plus up, that wasn't even manned to the full SMD requirement. Um, but that unit allowed sailors to take leave. Is that, is that with how that played out in that article? It is. And, and it kind of goes back to what Ward said about, you know, sailors will get the job done. So, um, yes, they got the tasking done, but there is, you know, back to those equations, there's a leave portion. You know, it's funny. I ask sometimes some very senior folks, you know, how much leave they've taken in their career. And you kind of get a harum. You know, I never took leave. And, um, well, actually, you took about two years of leave if you were in for 30, if you just do the math. Um and so one way to fix it is just don't let the sailors take leave. So that way, you know, there's a piece of the friction that, 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 that pluses up the available man hours. So, no, that, that, was a, that was one of the observations of how they what, – one, the, one of the things they had to do to get the job done. All right. Let's uh, go ahead and wrap it up. So, uh, John, any closing thoughts on this one? Uh, yeah. Uh, thanks. Just, just three – one, two closing thoughts. One is – Rick already mentioned this, but uh, – uh, you know, transparency. I think there's a lot of work going on in, in building systems. You know, it, it should it should surprise no one from the captain of the ship up to the CNO uh, how many chief petty officers are missing on a ship, right? I mean, it should be visible without any sort of building a PowerPoint brief. Um, just like Walmart can tell you how many black T-shirts are on the shelf in the Chesapeake Walmart. And that's tough, but I do think it's doable. And then what do you do with that information, Right. Um, the other piece is, uh, what levers can you actually pull now? There's, I've only found three, maybe Rick can help me out, but, uh, you know, if you want more sailors on ships, there's really three ways to get there. Buy more sailors, keep more sailors, or change the timing of the seashore rotation. Um, 
None of those is easy. I should have said right up front that I have spent in 30 years a total of one day in the Pentagon. Um, I've never had to deal with budgets, so it's totally unfair of me to, to even go down that road with how hard that is. But uh, I have spent a lot of time trying to think of a fourth lever, and I just haven't come up with it. And maybe Rick has some ideas, but, uh, but maybe there's pieces of all three of those that could be employed now um, to, uh, to sort of address today's problem. Because as Rick said, that chief that's missing today is going to take five, seven years to, to grow another one. All right, Fleet Raw, what uh, what would you say, closing thoughts on behalf of fleet sailors on this issue? You know, on behalf of the fleet sailors, I would, I would, you know, um, I will continue to advocate for, you know, resourcing the full NAVMAC requirement from ship manpower um, to fully fund the friction um, that exists. And then we have to continue to find, you know, um, efficiencies in the distribution system. Uh, but I, I don't know, to John's point, that there exists a a fourth dimension to get, you know, more time uh, for the sailors. Um, you know, you, you got to buy the people, you got to train them, you got to get them to the fleet. Um, you know, one way you could do that is you could, you could um, shorten short tours. Or, you know, John, I think that one thing that... Um, that we haven't discussed is when NAVMAC does the analysis for, for sea duty, that's based on a um, 67 uh, hour work week with 81 hours kind of total um, available time. Uh, but when we do the analysis for shore, that's based on um, a five day work week in 40 hours. Right. And so, you know, um, I think that, you know, our sailors coming off of, off of sea duty, they deserve and have earned, um, some time ashore to reset. Um, the other side of that is, is, you know, maybe we have to shorten shore tours to feed the, the, the fleet, right? I mean, at, at the end of the day, our, you know, our Navy exists um, for the warfighting platforms and capabilities that it can provide to our nation when called upon. So we need to, uh, paramount of that is man the fleet. Um, and I think that we should do that, you know, um, at all reasonable costs. Our guests today have been Dr. John Coral and Fleet Mass Chief Rick Overall. I think this has been a good, hopefully informative discussion for our listeners. We've given them some resources to go learn more about and hopefully given senior leaders something to think about. So thanks again for your advocacy, your openness and your willingness to come on the forum and use uh, this podcast to get this message out. Good luck to you guys. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Ward. Appreciate it. Thanks for the conversation. Great show, you guys. Thanks very much. Okay, that'll do it for this episode of the Presidents Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you again next time.